Welcome to The Ocean, episode 11. I'm Adam Mosley. In today's episode, I want to start a discussion about some of the most toxic elements of the religion that many of us grew up on. And I want to start with this question. Must we always be right? The answer has serious implications for our lives. So stick around. The Ocean Podcast. Life and faith that's welcoming, affirming, and encouraging to others and yourself. Here's our host, Adam Mosley. Culturally evangelical. That's how I now describe my upbringing. We were churchgoers, to be sure, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and any other time the doors were open. Our friendships were there, our social activities were there. And yet I say we were culturally evangelical because the overt spirituality seen in some families was largely lacking in mine. My parents were and are good people, but they weren't, at least for most of my life, the kind of people who had morning quiet time or a family prayer time. We we didn't pray before meals and we never really talked about spiritual things. We were, I suppose, evangelical light. The God stuff wasn't really part of our everyday. What was in the undercurrent of our entire lives was this assumption of espoused evangelical values, mostly social and political, that informed conversations and decisions at every level. It was the 80s, and the political expediency of Ronald Reagan joined forces with the power lust of Jerry Falwell Sr. to redefine both the political and religious landscape. Falwell's moral majority had propelled Reagan to the White House while embracing racist Jesse Helms and working to wrest the conservative right from, quote, three Catholics and a Jew, according to Christian Voices' Robert Grant. In rural East Tennessee, the moral majority was the majority the norm. To be anything other than a right-wing conservative took significant effort. My parents, not really political people, found their way from a Methodist church to an evangelical church when I was really young, and they've sort of been swimming in that forceful current ever since. I learned at a young age that abortion was murder, that Democrats were trying to remove prayer from schools, uh, and that there was an evil gay agenda that was threatening to destroy Christianity. I also learned that all the scientific evidence in the world could not stand against the truth of the biblical account of a six-day creation. That the Bible was a type of manual for humanity combined with a historical archive and a scientific textbook. The Bible was a place you went in search of answers, and if you worked hard enough, all the answers could be found there. I don't really blame the leaders or the teachers of our church. I don't blame my parents. All of them were simply regurgitating what others had said. James Dobson told them how evangelicals should raise their kids. Billy Graham taught them how and who to proselytize. Willow Creek's Bill Hybels showed them how to make church sexy and appealing. And they copied, pasted. I, in turn, floated along on the current of faith and culture that I inherited from my parents for the better part of 18 years. I followed the rules, I stayed out of trouble, I kept my grades up. As a kid, I rode the church bus to the big anti-abortion rally in Washington, D.C., and I marched with an angry crowd of people, claiming the name of Jesus while shouting insults at anyone who didn't agree with them. 
forever burned into my mind is the image of my father, as angry as I've ever seen him, shouting at the top of his lungs, pro-life all the way, pro-life all the way. I was maybe eight or nine years old, but something in me, even at that young age, knew this wasn't right. Still, I was the good, obedient child. I didn't rock the boat. I, the closest I came to rebelling was in my teen years, dating a girl whose parents were Hindu, which, make no mistake, was a big deal. And then, you know, unbeknownst to my parents, occasionally attending a few parties and having a beer. That was it. I was pretty much a good kid. And I knew which other kids around me were good and which ones weren't. The ones to hang out with and the ones to stay away from. My personal experiences sort of confirmed my ideals, largely due to a huge dose of confirmation bias. The only people I knew who were pro-choice were also Democrats who drank and smoked, you know, three, four strikes, I guess. The one open lesbian I knew in high school was an atheist, so I could sort of chalk her up as like one of the lost as a theater actor, even in rural Tennessee, I did know some gay guys, but I was mostly kind of unaware of them, except for the one who tried everything in his power to seduce me when I was 17 years old. Thinking back on it now, I recognize that this 22-year-old man was sexually harassing me, a minor, for weeks, including trying to get me into a hot tub at a cast party and whispering in my ear that he could turn any man gay if I would just give him a chance. Back then, I chalked this up as gay behavior, not predatory behavior. There was no distinction between the two, according to my evangelical upbringing. It wasn't until my freshman year of college that I could really begin to break out of the confines of East Tennessee conservative evangelicalism. I went to Webster University to get a theater degree, but what I learned in my time in St. Louis was far more consequential than proper breathing techniques or how to move through a room with intent and purpose. What I learned is that people who are Democrats, people who smoke and drink, people who are gay, and people who regularly drop F-bombs, all of these people can also be brilliant thinkers, incredible friends, selfless, welcoming, deeply spiritual and that often they will act a lot more like Jesus than any of the evangelicals I grew up around. It's laughable to me now, but being in that place with that group of friends absolutely freaked me out. Everything I had built my life and faith on was crumbling. It turned out there was no gay agenda. It turned out that being a Democrat didn't mean you hated God. It turned out that the hate and disgust and exclusion that had become so normalized in my church circles was not normal at all. My first time home on break, I talked to my dad about how I really didn't buy the idea that there was a biblical prohibition against being gay. Now, I, I didn't have a well-thought-out argument here, but my dad didn't press me on it, though I can only imagine the conversations he and my mom had behind closed doors. Here they were, paying for their son to be in theater conservatory, and after only a few weeks, I had been caught in the snares of liberalism. My parents, though, as conservative as they were and are, still love their kids more than their ideologies. 
They might not like where I've ended up, but they still love me. They still support me. They're still proud of me. And for that, I'm really grateful because I know there are so many who aren't as fortunate. Still, when I think back on my childhood, I realize that I and all those who grew up around me were absolutely set up for failure. Set up, in fact, for spiritual failure, for a crisis of faith. It turns out that that when you build a theological house of cards, it doesn't take much for the whole thing to topple. And when you so narrowly define what is good, you leave open the possibility of your child stepping outside of that boundary only to find an entirely new and freshly liberating good. And then never looking back. So many aspects of evangelical culture have left scars on us individually and corporately. But today, I want to focus on this one. Certainty. Must we always be right? But first, I want to talk to you about Patreon. If you're a regular listener of this podcast or any podcast, you've probably heard of Patreon. What you may not know is that Patreon is home to over 200,000 artists, podcasters, musicians, writers, and creators of all kinds who are engaging with people around the world and receiving support for their work. Here at the Ocean, this is a labor of love. The hours spent each week conceptualizing, writing, recording, and producing every episode amount to an unpaid part-time job. And for us, as with other creators, Patreon offers an opportunity for you, if you've been impacted by this work, to support the efforts of the Ocean Podcast. Becoming a patron has its privileges, including exclusive content and access to special patron-only gatherings. And patron levels start at just $5 per month. So whether you can toss a little or a lot our way, your contributions help us continue the work of the ocean and eventually to expand this effort to build the ocean community. So head over to patreon.com slash the ocean for all of the info and to become a patron today. And let me say thank you in advance for your support. Education, it's been said, is the pathway from cocky ignorance to miserable uncertainty. That quote is often attributed to Mark Twain, but we don't actually know where it came from. Nevertheless, it succinctly sums up my own journey through life and faith, and possibly yours as well. The path from cocky ignorance to miserable uncertainty. These days, it's more like activated and active uncertainty for me than it is miserable, but I certainly been in that miserable place. I've watched my spiritual house of cards crumble. I've worked to build something more robust in its place. And I've also watched as evangelical church leaders have put down roots in this territory of cocky ignorance, sometimes willful ignorance in their efforts to maintain an air of certainty. Certainty, you see, is the holy grail of right-wing white evangelicalism. This focus on religious certainty really came to prominence in the 18th century, and it paralleled the rise of Enlightenment philosophy. As Enlightenment thinkers argued for the sovereignty of reason and the human ability to discover truth through logical thinking and study, prominent church leaders in the Catholic and Protestant traditions 
argued for the sovereignty of God and ultimately the Bible as the source and arbiter of truth. Truth, they argued, is absolute, and that absolute truth can be found in the canonical Bible. The modern evangelical doctrine of biblical inerrancy, that the scripture contains no errors of fact, is an anti-intellectual response to both Enlightenment thinking and traditional Jewish and Christian thought. Even the more common doctrine of infallibility, that scripture is sufficient to achieve the end for which it is intended, meaning that it may have factual errors, but it's nonetheless God designed to achieve its particular purpose. Even that is inconsistent with the views of the church prior to the Enlightenment. But you see, during the 18th century, some themes began to emerge in the church that we still see today. Preachers and church leaders began to lash out at academics and institutions, at scientists and scientific methods, at philosophers and philosophies, historians and documented histories that were all seen as anti-church. And over the past 300 years, we've seen this anti-intellectual sentiment coalesce into doctrines like belief in a literal six-day creation, young earth theory, and now even anti-mask movements, though there is ample contrary scientific evidence against these things. We've seen this insistence on biblical inerrancy lead to the dismissal of archaeological evidence, denial of historical scholarly study, and even disapproval of older scriptural sources, which are, in theory, closer to the original. Among rank-and-file evangelicals, the errors and discrepancies and contradictions found in the Bible aren't really well-known, they're not really talked about, but biblical scholars and historians know, for example, that the nation of Israel wasn't anywhere near as large as is claimed when they exited Egypt. They know that the mighty city of Jericho was probably nothing more than a small military outpost, a lookout station. They also know that the books of the Torah were compilations, not written by a single person, but taken away from and added to over the years. They know that many of the writings attributed to people like the Apostle Paul were not written by those people at all. Some, in Paul's case, were written after his death. And yet religious leaders, many who have advanced degrees in theology and biblical studies, continue to perpetuate this certainty myth about biblical texts. Why? Why not just tell the truth about what the Bible is and what it isn't? Well, there's, there's a lot of church history at play here, and I won't go into all of it, but uh, the bottom line is, Only a few hundred years after Jesus was killed as an enemy of the Roman Empire, the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official state-sponsored religion of Rome. The threat represented in Jesus hadn't died with Jesus, and it only continued to grow. So Constantine knew he couldn't kill all the Christians, and so he decided to court them instead and to use them as political pawns by pandering to them by giving them power, by making them important. And with that move, the authority of the church and its marriage to political power was cemented for over a thousand years. The invention of the printing press and later the Protestant Reformation threatened that power once again. Now people could read the Bible for themselves and the Protestant reformers encouraged them to. 
rich and poor alike could access these ancient writings. And in the process, many began to question church leadership and theology and politics. They also began to point out discrepancies in scripture. Of course, for those in power, this was a problem. If these lowlifes began to question the official teachings of the church, the authority of political and religious figures, if they began to read closely the words written in scripture, they would be a threat to the power of both the religious leaders and the politicians. So when the Enlightenment came along, it offered a perfect excuse to try to rally a coalition of Christians around anti-intellectual ideas. Church leaders created an effective boogeyman through fear-mongering and hyperbole. Regardless of the fact that Christianity was prevalent throughout the 18th century and that printing of religious literature flourished and increased during that time, Christian leaders of the day cast dire warnings about how scientists were trying to kill religion, how philosophers were sowing dissent among the people, how the academy was an existential threat to the church. They didn't want to lose their power over the poor and uneducated, so they manipulated the poor and uneducated into believing that they had a common enemy. Does any of this sound familiar? The playbook used by religious and political leaders during the Enlightenment is the same playbook used by Jerry Falwell Sr. and Ronald Reagan in the 80s. It's the same playbook used by Donald Trump and Franklin Graham today. Donald Trump, we're told, saved Christianity. Elect Joe Biden, the devout Catholic, and they tell us there will be no God. When people are desperate for power, they will say and do anything to try to manipulate people into helping them maintain that power. And history has shown us that large numbers of people will allow themselves to be manipulated even against their best interests and the best interests of their neighbors and their world. And a central component of this manipulation is this idea of certainty. The Bible, we're told, is the foundation of our faith. It's the word of God. It's the core of our theology. And the Bible, they say, has to be rightly interpreted in order for us to understand it. And so if your pastor says that homosexuality is not biblical, you're supposed to believe that. If you question that, then you are questioning the Bible, the this, this source of all truth. You're questioning that which is certain. When your Christian friend argues for unfettered capitalism and claims biblical authority and quotes Dave Ramsey teachings, you aren't allowed to question it. Even if you find some things in the Bible that contradict this message, and there are a lot of them, you, you just aren't allowed to bring those up. The empire of conservatism has spoken, the church has capitulated, and the conservative playbook has been rewritten as scripture. To oppose or even question the supposed truths of modern conservatism is to stand against biblical teaching we're supposed to believe. If you aren't anti-LGBT, anti-choice, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, and anti-poor, are you even a real Christian? The answer from many corners of evangelicalism is a resounding no. Our Lord and Savior Ronald Reagan spoketh trickle-down economics and family values into existence, and it was good. There can be no questioning, no doubt, no debate 
The name of God is invoked to support all manner of evil, and the certainty myth is the clincher. This is what the Bible says. If you go against this, then you go against the Bible. The Bible is clear, they say, when language in the Bible is far from clear. God's word says, they cry, when what they mean is that they interpret an ancient text in a particular way. Meanwhile, that same text calls Jesus the word of God. And there's very little that these guys can cite from Jesus to support their ideologies. I recently read through a 48-page pamphlet from the Family Research Council entitled Biblical Principles for Political Engagement, colon, Worldview, Issues, and Voting. Yes, I read the whole thing, so you don't have to. Predictably, the authors of this pamphlet insist that Christians should view the Republican Party's views as the correct ones on the issues of abortion and marriage though they can only cite one time where Jesus talked about marriage in the way that they want him to, and it does little to support their point. Surprisingly, they actually acknowledge in this pamphlet that issues of poverty and racial justice are important in the Bible, and that they're represented throughout the Bible, including in the teachings of Jesus. But the conclusion that they reach after this acknowledgement is that both parties are, well, pretty equal in how they approach the issues of poverty and racial justice, that the Bible is unclear on how to address these issues or even how to identify them. Can you hear my eye roll? So not to beleaguer the point here, but what the authors are saying is that on the issues of abortion and gay marriage, two issues that aren't directly addressed in any biblical text, we are to believe that, quote, the Bible is clear. And on the issues of poverty and racial injustice, written about directly by many biblical authors and addressed on multiple occasions by Jesus himself, we are to believe that there is a gray area, room for interpretation. Convenient. It seems the certainty myth only applies to that which conservative religious leaders believe. They are certain that oppressed people should remain oppressed. These mental and theological gymnastics, the lengths gone to to provide religious justification for political power grabs, would be laughable if not for the horrific consequences wrought by these abhorrent beliefs. Certainty about what constitutes biblical sexuality has served to subjugate women in churches, corporations, and society at large, to shame girls and women about their thoughts, their clothing, and their bodies, to justify the oppression of LGBTQ plus people as falling outside of God's design, and to squash discussion within the church of any sort of sexual ethic outside of marriage between a man and a woman. This is biblical sexuality, we're told. They are certain of it. And yet they get all kinds of squirmy when you start talking about the sanctioned polyamory and polygamy in the Bible or the premarital sex referenced in the Song of Songs or the transactional nature of marriage throughout biblical literature. The certainty with which these religious leaders approach sex leaves no room for the idea that a gender nonconforming bisexual might have a richer sexual ethic than the beloved Abraham, who had children by multiple women, including slaves who did not have the privilege of consent. 
The certainty that marriage is between a man and a woman, something biblical authors sometimes describe but never insist upon, delegitimizes even people joined in monogamous, loving, committed relationships who aren't opposite sex. Certainty about the scientific and historical accuracy of the Bible leads to a level of anti-intellectualism that denies even basic facts of science and history. Scientists, we're told, are not to be trusted. Evidence is believed to be manipulated if it doesn't align with certain beliefs. Facts are not facts because if they are true, then the entire religious political power system comes crumbling down and average ordinary people might see through the bullshit and decide that revolution is preferable to subjugation. And in the end, we're forced to make that choice. We can choose to exist under the watchful eye of those peddling certainty, to give over our doubts, our questions, our curiosity, our dissent, and our grasp of truth to an empire-aligned religion. Or we can walk away. Many of us, understanding that breaking free from that religion was the only acceptable path forward, also broke away from a belief in the divine. If God was who they said God was, then we didn't want to have anything to do with that God. And I understand where you're coming from. When given that choice, I would choose no God over that God too. Fortunately, there are other options. Like so many things in our world, we don't have to live with the binary that's been offered to us. I believe in a God of uncertainty, a God of mystery. I believe in a God who is happy for us to have doubts, to ask questions, to process truth in our context. I believe in a God who made us as incredibly unique individuals with different points of view, who isn't afraid of tough questions, and that a collection of writings that we call scripture can really be helpful, can provide wonderful insight. But I believe in a God who doesn't require us to deify words that are written by flawed people who allows us to question and even dismiss that which clearly contradicts the character and nature of a loving God. And at the end of the day, I believe God loves me enough, loves you enough, that even if we're really wrong on some of this stuff, God still welcomes us as children, embraces us, and offers us grace, hope, and love. If you've never met that God, I invite you on the journey. There's not a whole lot of certainty here. It's an adventure, but it's good. Throughout my life, my ministry, my travels, and my friendships, this thread of truth persists. All those good evangelical kids, like me, hit a fork in the road. Sometimes they choose to rethink, to deconstruct, to set aside their inherited faith for a different type of faith or no faith at all. But there are those who choose the other fork, and those good kids sometimes turn into the worst kind of adult and perpetuate this generation after generation, sheltered from the realities of the world, isolated from the impact of their closed systems of faith, moved around like pawns on a chessboard by those in power and those who seek power. Obedient soldiers in a culture war, they loyally follow orders. What I've realized is that I can't change them. 
for they see no need to change. I can't blame them for they know not what they do. But I don't have to be one of them. And neither do you. I'm Adam Mosley, and that's all I've got. The Ocean Podcast is produced and written by me, Adam Mosley, and recorded in Athens, Georgia. The theme music was composed by Irina Kakiani, and the opening voiceover is by Rachel West. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Adam Mosley. For reproduction, interviews, or bookings, email request at theoceanpodcast.com.